Well, here we are. Finally. Only took three months, but we're back together. We have been advised to ease into this, so that's what we're doing. And I appreciate everyone being so, so respectful of the elders' wishes and being in compliance. I'll have you know that when the elders and staff and the what we called the comeback committee got together, I'll have you know that our discussions were not about politics. We didn't talk about conspiracy theories, believe it or not. What we talked about is how can we keep our people safe as we come together. And so Annie Drachenberg, David Longley, health officials, the CDC, our mayor, our governor, our president, we listened to all those to try to make up a plan that was best suited for us in getting back together. And we think this is a good one. And we're so excited to see you. And we want you to know that these are temporary measures that we hope we can do away with very soon. Thank you for being here this morning. You know, as, we, uh, as I talked about coming together and I thought about what we could do that first Sunday as far as a sermon goes, I thought, you know, I really don't want to focus on COVID because people are sick and tired of it. Now, I do have a sermon planned when we do kind of get more back to normal and we're or more together. But I'm going to save that for another time, but I'm not going to do a series on what we've learned from COVID and all that, because I'm sick and tired of it, and I think you are too. As I look through the schedule of sermons, I, I realize the author and perfecter of our faith is what we're scheduled to do this morning as we come back together for the first time, and I thought, hey, that really kind of hits what, what's been going on in our culture. Now, I hope you will tune in tonight to the live stream, because I will be focusing that message on what we've been seeing in our world lately. With, uh, with the division, and uh, I hope you'll tune in. I think it's a message important for all of us. But this morning, I want to keep with our schedule and, and apply it to what we've kind of been dealing with over the last several months. Did you know that the United States used to have an emperor? Actually, yes. It wasn't official, but there was a guy by the name of Joshua A. Norton who set himself up as emperor of the United States back in the 1800s during the gold rush days in San Francisco. And everybody just played along. Because uh, to put it nicely, Josh Norton was kind of uh, off kilter. And the citizens let him have his day in the sun. They allowed him to be emperor. They invited him to special events and big galas. He donned a sword and a cape and a plume in his hat and he strutted the streets acting like he was emperor and everybody was okay with it. In fact, when he died in 1859, 10,000 people attended the funeral. Still one of the biggest funerals ever in the history of California. But make no mistake about it. Had Josh Norton pushed the issue, had he pushed harder to make it more official, he would have been rejected because he was no emperor. And I bring up that story because when you look at Jesus entering Jerusalem, he was treated as royalty, the triumphal entry, as we, as we call it. The coats were thrown on the ground, palm branches waved in the air, the people shouting Hosanna in the highest as Jesus rode in on the back of a donkey. They had their man. They were offering their admiration to a rising political figure. And oppressed people were crying out for their deliverer and king. But when others asked who Jesus was, they missed it. Notice what they said. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They missed it. What if George W. Bush were to come to Abilene 
and you were invited to introduce him, what would you say to introduce George W. Bush? You might talk about how he is a graduate of Yale, how he used to uh, own the Texas Rangers, how he served in the U.S. military. Ladies and gentlemen, George W. Bush. Well, you missed a key detail, didn't you? The fact that he was the 43rd president of the United States, that's kind of important, isn't it? I mean, after all, he's not coming to Abilene to talk about baseball. He's coming to Abilene because of his stature as the former president of the United States, right? You completely missed it on the introduction. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. The Son of Man arrived for the most climactic event in all of history, and the people got the introduction wrong. Why? Because they were focused elsewhere. They were focused on themselves and their surroundings instead of Jesus. Some were fixated on Jesus being like a miracle-working vending machine. Some were focused on Jesus uh, healing them. Some were focused on him giving them something to eat. Some were focused on Jesus just being the God of their comfort and convenience. Very few knew the true ramifications of Jesus as Messiah, as the King of Kings. Jesus was focused on enlarging his royal family, and many people were focused elsewhere. Look with me at Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have a so great a, a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, I say this all the time, but it's so important. Sometimes we proof text our way through the Bible, or we practice one verse theology, and we pull out one or two verses and make them stand in isolation, and you can't do that. That's terrible exegesis. So when we look at Hebrews chapter 12, we understand that it comes after Hebrews 11, right? I mean, I know that's earth-shattering, but what did Hebrews chapter 11 say, especially at the end, verses 32 and following? It says, and what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Uh, to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocks, mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We are encircled by the greatness of the past. These are the people who have already run the race and have claimed the eternal prize. They stayed the course. Even when it was difficult, they kept running. Even when it meant persecution and death. And here's what the Hebrew writer is doing. He is linking the past with the future. He is linking the past with us. The echoes of this go throughout the centuries. The message is still loud and clear. This is the same race that they faced. 
We're running the same race that they ran. So we study their successes, right? We look at what motivated them to run in the way that they did. What kept them running? How did they make it through such difficult circumstances? I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Timothy Olson. Timothy Olson is an ultra marathoner, which means he likes to run really, really far. 100 miles at a time. He's very accomplished as an ultramarathoner. He was a great high school cross-country runner, which got him many scholarship offers, but he was a very uh, quiet, shy, insecure kid. When he got out of high school, he found a new life in drugs and alcohol. And he became so immersed in that culture that he ended up in prison. Finally, he gets out of prison, and he decides to take up running again. He said, I remember standing in the shower, weeping bitterly as I think about the, the way my life had turned out and what I'd done to myself, what drugs had done to him. And so he decided to get back into running just to detox and to cleanse his body, but he learned that he still had a love affair with running. And so he began racing again. That became his outlet. And in 2012, Timothy Olson won the Western States 100-mile race with a record time of 14 hours in 46 minutes, that was over 20 minutes faster than the previous record. In 2014, he was voted Male Runner of the Year. And I love how Timothy Olson sums up his life to this point. He says, after years of not knowing who I was and destroying my body, I knew I wanted more with my life than just sitting on a couch, destroying brain cells and watching my body decay away. This awakening sparked something inside that made me want to live and enjoy life to the utmost. He says, I've been in pretty low, dark places, but through this, I have acquired a newfound strength. Through adversity, I feel I have a lion heart that is strong, fearless, and will not give up. I do the best I can every day, and my hope is to inspire and bring joy to everyone I meet. I can't imagine running 100 miles at one time. I can't imagine walking a one-mile race, much less running 100 miles. But Timothy Olson has made a life for himself by using running and marathoning as an outlet. And I don't know too much about suffering. I certainly don't know much about suffering that comes with running. I don't know how much you know about suffering, but one thing that we all have in common is that we all know about suffering from consequences of sin just like Timothy Olson. We all know what it's like to sin and to deal with the consequences of that. In fact, there are some that are here this morning. There are some that are tuning in on the live stream, that are watching the TV program, that are barely getting by because of this. They are afflicted, and they don't know if they can keep going. The question becomes, what keeps you running? When the circumstances are so adverse, what keeps you running? How do you become an ultra-marathoner in the faith? And, and, and maybe you're struggling to figure that out. But my guess is the reason that you're here, the reason that you tuned in during uh, the pandemic to our live stream, the reason that you pray, the reason that you open your Bible and you hang on for dear life is because you understand that this isn't all that there is, that it actually does get better than this. I love the two words that the Hebrew writer uses here author and perfecter. The word author means exactly what you would think it means in the Greek. It means originator, creator, because that's what an author is. 
Here in Hebrews 12, it can mean captain, it can mean prince, it can mean chief leader. He is the leader of all others who trod down the path of righteousness to eternal life. Jesus is the author, he is the creator, the originator of all of that. He provides access and we follow in his footsteps. It's interesting that the word author here can also mean pioneer. In fact, your version may use that word. What's a pioneer? Someone who blazes a trail, right? Someone who is the first to enter into new territory, discover new territory. Isn't that what Jesus did? And we follow in his footsteps into that new territory. We follow hot on his heels because he is our leader, leading down the path that he has already cut, a path that leads us home to our eternal dwelling place. But not only is he author or pioneer or originator, he is also the perfecter of our faith. And in the Greek, this is the word teleo, which means to bring to an end by completing or perfecting. We find this in Hebrews 5, 9, where it reads, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus, being the perfecter of our faith, simply refers to the fact that we can place our full confidence and trust in him because what he starts, he's going to finish. God is author, Jesus is author, and he doesn't leave any work undone. Here's the summary of the phrase, author and perfecter of our faith. What Jesus has started, he will finish. That's it. He's the originator. He's the creator. He's the founder. He intended all of this to reach an exclamation point, and he's going to make sure that it gets there with or without you. I'd rather be on board, wouldn't you? So when you're, when you're sitting in that chair, and you're receiving your dose of chemo. And you're thinking about your future. Your kids. Maybe your grandkids. You can trust that this isn't as good as it gets. That this isn't all that there is. When you soak your pillow at night with tears. Because after 50 years of marriage you're going to bed alone for the first time. You understand that this isn't all that there is, that it gets better. When you turn on the news and all you see is division, and all you see is, is hopelessness and darkness and rioting and looting and police brutality and all these things, you, you say this isn't all that there is, that it gets better. When you're struggling through a pandemic, maybe you lose your job. Maybe you fall ill yourself. You tell yourself, this isn't all that there is. There's something better. When hope and healing seem about as far away as the sun, keep this in mind. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It should comfort us to know that God is in control of all of this. That our salvation is not fragile. It's not some fleeting state. That it is in good hands. You know, if the only thing I know about my salvation is that I check the boxes or I climb the stairs, you know, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, if that's all I know about my salvation, then I've completely missed a lot. It's about a relationship. 
It's about the fact that I am in the hands of God and that I am racing to victory and that someday, if I just keep running, I'm going to get there. And everything that is wrong with the world is going to be made right. That there will be redemption and reconciliation for all of this, not even just for me, but for everything. The curse will be lifted. I trust in that. And so I race and I race towards the finish line. I keep running even when the circumstances are difficult. I think I've told you before that for seven years, I worked as a bag boy and then a manager at a grocery store in my hometown. My senior year of high school and then into college. And so if you're doing the math, it, yes, it took me more than four years to complete college. Uh, we won't get into that. And no, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> there was a common occurrence in the grocery store. You know what it was? It's lost children. That seemed to happen quite often. I'd be stocking shelves and some little boy or girl would run by mommy mommy they couldn't find their mom sometimes they would stop and they would say have you seen my mom and I'd say yes she told me she doesn't want you anymore and she left no I didn't do that <laughs> maybe once no oftentimes I would take them by the hand I would lead them around the store till we found their mom sometimes I would take them to the front of the store and I'd get on the intercom and I would say, Miss so-and-so, your child is at the front of the store looking for you. You would be amazed at how often mom was not happy to see their child. In fact, they were quite embarrassed that they got called out over the uh, loudspeaker or they were angry that their child run wandered off in the first place. Obviously, they were excited to get their child back, but in that moment, they were a little bit upset. That is the word picture for fix in Hebrews 12. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. The word picture for fix is a child who is walking through a crowded place, looking around, taking in all the sights and sounds and smells, and looks up, and all of a sudden, mom's gone. And so they make their way through the crowd, shouting, Mommy, Mommy, until finally, mom raises her hand, says, Over here, and the child runs up to mom, embraces her leg, happy that he finally found his mother. That's the word picture of fix in Hebrews chapter 12. It's about having tunnel vision. And we as disciples must have tunnel vision, looking towards the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you know what blinders are? People who have horses may know what blinders are, especially racehorses. Racehorses wear blinders. Do you know why? There's an old tale about a preacher who bet another man that he could get his horse to walk upstairs. And he won the bet, except he couldn't get the horse to walk down the stairs. And so what he did is he put blinders. He figured out if I, if I cover his eyes to where he only sees what's ahead of him, the horse will walk down the stairs. And sure enough, it did. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's where we got the term blinders or the concept. But racehorses wear blinders to block out everything around the horse so that they're only focused on the finish line. They can't see what's behind them or around them. Wouldn't that be great for Christians sometimes? That we have blinders so that we only see the finish line and not what's behind us or around us. Because Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 basically says looking means not looking. That's it. The idea is fix, fix your eyes on one focal point and nowhere else. But what happens all too often is that we start with our circumstances, not with Jesus. How much different would things be in our world if everyone started with Jesus first and then went to their circumstances, right? Wouldn't we handle things so much better 
If we started with Christ instead of our circumstances, start with Jesus, let him lead the way. Don't start with your circumstances. Go to scripture, do a thorough review of what you know about our Lord, that he is loving and gracious and kind and powerful and in control. Fix your eyes on the one who holds your your well-being in his hands. If you start with Jesus, then it affects everything else that you do. And you know what happens when you start with Jesus? You respond to your circumstances accordingly. There have been many people who have acted unchristlike during this pandemic, during this racial divide that we see. What if we started with Jesus first? What if we went there first and then went to our circumstances? How would it change things? And remember this. When you feel like giving up, you're already a winner. You've already won. God has promised you the victory as long as you'll keep running. You know, we, I've said this before, but we all, know, we all know of quitters, don't we? We all know of people who started out so well and they drop out of the race. And that's truly sad, isn't it? You don't have to run this marathon of faith in record time. You don't have to beat anyone else. You just have to finish. Be a finisher. Don't quit. No matter how difficult it gets, don't quit. Keep racing toward the finish line. You're already a winner. Consider verses 2 and 3 one more time. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him, consider Jesus, the one who has already run the race, and the one who makes this race even possible to begin with. Follow him. He started this. God started it. Jesus came to complete it. He ran up a hill, attached himself to a cross. We follow him. We race for him. We race to him, right? The cross is our motivation and our inspiration, and we get our second win from those who have come before us and have finished the race. You know, in watching my wife run marathons, one thing I've noticed is that virtually everyone who crosses the finish line is ecstatic. They're happy. They didn't win. I mean, out of 20, 30,000 contestants, some of them finished like dead last, and they're still excited. Is only the winner allowed to be happy? I mean, the majority of people who enter the Boston Marathon don't think they're going to win, unless they're delusional, right? There is a group of runners that have a chance at winning that they put at the very front, and nobody's catching them. But virtually everyone who finishes is ecstatic. You know why? Because that was the goal. It's a a life goal. I just want to finish a marathon. And when they finish, they're ecstatic. They may never run another marathon, but they wanted to finish. Same with us. Just finish. You don't have to win. You don't have to beat anybody. You're already a victor. You just have to finish the race. And remember this. People are remembered for how they finish. Like it or not, that's the truth. And unfortunately for some, their funeral is a disappointment. Don't let your funeral be a disappointment. You are remembered for how you finish. So finish well. Keep running. Cross that finish line completely and totally exhausted and give out and falling into the arms of Jesus. No one knows what lies ahead. We all have hopes and dreams, but all of that can change in the blink of an eye. We've seen that, haven't we? Sooner or later, if we live long enough, 
we're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience adversity. What will our response be? How will we respond to the circumstances surrounding us? Will we take our eyes off of Jesus and focus elsewhere? Or will we continue to run hot on his heels towards the finish line? When it seems like doom and gloom are around every corner, when it seems like we cannot go on, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who's leading us, the author and perfecter of our faith. I assume that's why you're here this morning. I assume that's why folks are tuning in this morning to the live stream is because they want to keep running. Maybe you're, maybe you're dealing with thoughts of wanting to quit. Maybe you veered off course at one point. Maybe you've been distracted by the sights and the sounds and you decided to run in a different direction. Kind of like the TV show I was watching yesterday. They were running a race for charity and, and four of the guys hopped in a cab and went to the finish line and got out and crossed. I mean, that really doesn't get it done, does it? If we can help you this morning, it's great to be back together. And maybe you've been itching for this day so that you could ask for the prayers and support of this church family. And unfortunately, we have to practice this six-foot fellowship, and I don't like it, but we want what's best for you. More importantly, God wants what's best for you. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.